You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm Ankit Panda, your host in New York City. And this is Prashant Parameswaran, your co-host from Washington, D.C. How's it going today, Prashant? Always good to be back with you. Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, for our listeners, this is our uh, special edition podcast, I guess, for ASEAN's 50th anniversary, which falls on August 6th, uh, 2017. And uh, it's a big year for the regional grouping, which is currently being chaired by the Philippines. And um, in August, uh, there will be a series of meetings related to the ASEAN Regional Forum um, and a bunch of uh, other ASEAN-related meetings on the sidelines. I always see this late summer period as kind of the kickoff period for the eventual fall of Asian summitry that mostly also takes place under the auspices of ASEAN. Um, so um, I'm always glad to have Prashant with me when talking about ASEAN because he's our uh, Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat and has been watching a lot of these issues very closely um, recently. So over this podcast, we'll talk about a few issues that come up around uh, this 50th anniversary session of Summitry for ASEAN. But Prashant, I guess a good place to start would be to talk about the significance of 50 years of ASEAN um, for the grouping. I mean, this is a major anniversary for the Southeast Asian body with uh, with 10 member states. So uh, could you tell us a bit about um, how this uh, anniversary is being perceived in the region and what the significance more broadly is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the first place to start would, would be to say that, um, you know, when these meetings happen in, in Manila in the coming days, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, victorious parades uh, concerts, um, you know, and, and various ceremonies that will sort of celebrate this occasion. But I think to a certain extent, they do conceal the more sort of sobering reality, right? That, you know, ASEAN, uh, as successful as it, it has been, has been sort of a victim of its own success. Um, if you were to speak about, um, you know, you were to talk to ASEAN's original founding fathers and tell them that after 50 years, ASEAN would be, you know, the, the cumulatively the seventh largest world economy and and the center of Asian multilateralism, as you and I have talked about in this podcast before. I mean, I, I don't think they would they would believe you. Um, the organization's really come a long way since, you know, being a, a group of small states in the middle of the Cold War. But at the same time, I mean, those very successes have exposed a lot of its sort of long-held problems. I mean, a lot of these things are are fairly standard, you know, sort of lingering disputes within South, uh, among Southeast Asian states, lack of awareness about the ASEAN project among the population. Um, and some of these problems are even harder now that ASEAN is more matured, right? So it's not sufficient enough for Southeast Asian countries, the more advanced ones, to just grow. They have to do things like escape the middle income trap. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you manage inequality? Um, and, and of course, you know, like you and I have talked about on this podcast on the South China Sea and some of these other difficult issues, how do we go about changing or amending this consensus-based decision-making process that tends to paralyze the bloc? So really a lot of, um, a, a mixed bag altogether, but a lot of remaining issues for ASEAN to address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, one of the issues that, if, if I were to, beyond sort of this ASEAN anniversary, one of the issues that's been dominating this year, more so than last year, even though it's always been sort of a slow boil, is is the North Korea issue. And and you and I have written about this uh, a lot in 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 the last few weeks, uh, much more so than I think we'd, we would like. Um, and uh, the the big thing that we've seen in the news so far is uh, this North Korean challenge uh, emerge as um, an issue for the and at the ASEAN Regional Forum. You know, the Philippines is hosting this. Uh, the ASEAN Summitry this year, um, and there's there's been all sorts of headlines and speculation regarding you know what will we see with respect to the two Koreas, what will we see with respect to North Korea and the United States, um, and you know we 
we don't have a lot of clarity on that. Um, but you know, given the fact that you've been writing uh, a lot about this uh, issue, Ankit, you, you frame that uh, a little bit for listeners and tell us, like, what, what do you think you're expecting or looking for there? Yeah, sure. So uh, a North Korean foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, is expected to attend the ARF this year, uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum. Uh, North Korea has been a member since uh, 2000, um, and the ARF itself was set up uh, earlier in the early 90s as a... Uh, as a shop to essentially help um, Asian states manage uh, various regional security um, cooperation problems. Um, and North Korea has certainly uh, you know, been thrust to the top of the agenda in Asia and certainly for the Trump administration in the United States. Uh, so I guess we should also mention that this will be the first trip to Southeast Asia by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson since he was confirmed. And um, you and I talked about his meeting uh, with the ASEAN foreign ministers in uh, Washington, D.C., when North Korea, you know, dominated a lot of the headlines talking about that meeting, mm-hmm. the perception for um, for a while, at least, I mean, until, um, you know, you and some other people dug into the background, it, it really seemed like the United States was kind of shoving down, um, shoving North Korea down the throats of kind of ASEAN states saying that, you know, we think this is the top issue in Asia today. So you should think so, too. But then, you know, since after that, we've um, we've had evidence that um, ASEAN states themselves um, are beginning to, uh, well, not beginning to, but, you know, are are taking the North Korean threat more and more seriously. I mean, obviously, with uh, February's assassination of uh, Kim Jong-nam using the VX nerve agent in Kuala Lumpur International Airport, I think certainly showed the region um, the extent to which North Korea is willing to go for um, certain objectives that it perceives to be quite important for itself. Um, but look, I mean, so this uh, North Korean issue at ARF, uh, the United States is looking to isolate North Korea. Um, it has been stated as a matter of policy at the State Department that they're looking to do this. Um, but, you know, I mean, in doing so, Prashant, I think you got to this in um, your piece on this uh, issue, uh, which is that, you know, by doing so, it would actually serve to degrade and neuter the value of the ARF in a way from the perspective of ASEAN states. And in um, in doing so, it would be a difficult sell with a lot of these countries who see this forum as a unique place for a country like North Korea to send top governmental officials to the same place as other major powers, including the United States, at a time when negoti- um, opportunities for negotiations and direct talks between these two sides are at um, a historic low. Um, And the Philippines, too, I think, is an interesting player. I mean, um, if you remember that leaked transcript of the Trump um, phone call with Duterte, um, Mm -hmm. I thought one of the things that was really interesting in that transcript was that Duterte brings up North Korea to Trump. It's not the other way around. Um, And looking in from the outside, it always, you know, again, it seemed like the United States was kind of shoving the North Korean issue down all these uh, Southeast Asian states' throats. But, like, um, I mean, Duterte has been concerned. And obviously this week, you know, he made headlines in his typical way by calling uh, Kim Jong-un a, uh, I believe it was a chubby son of a bitch. Maybe I don't have the translation right. But, um, you know, so uh, there is um, increasing support in ASEAN, obviously, for um, treating North Korea as a threat that it is. But I don't think that, you know, this um, U.S. push to remove North Korea from the ARF will uh, either be uh, popular or um, or plausible uh, in the short term. I mean, uh, since you've been looking into this and you've been uh, talking to some of the people, um, at least on the U.S. side, making, um, what's your what's your sense of the thinking here, Prashant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, the point that you made about sort of the, uh, here in Washington, what some people have been calling like the, the North Koreaizing of Asia policy, U.S. Asia policy, I mean, yeah. that's certainly a, a big concern. Um, and particularly among Southeast Asian states where, you know, as we'll talk about later in this podcast, you know, the, the issue that's really front and center and the most urgent is the Islamic State and terrorism in Southeast Asia, not North Korea. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to sort of this this gap in threat perceptions between uh, the United States and some of these other Southeast Asian countries. Um, it also does speak to um, what you mentioned in your response as well, which is, I mean, 
these, you know, the United States and Southeast Asian states deal with these issues very differently. I mean, there is a sense uh, among Southeast Asian countries that engagement, even if it's for engagement's sake, uh, need, needs to happen, and that's kind of their role. Um, and they, there's not that much belief that some of these coercive measures like severing, severing links with North Korea or imposing sort of diplomatic punishments will necessarily yield um, good outcomes. But it's also, you know, there is that uh, self-interest uh, tendency as well among some of these Southeast Asian states. Some of, the, some of them do have uh, remaining links with North Korea. Some of them are economic. Others are military and historic uh, links that go back uh, quite a bit. So it's not easy for some of these Southeast Asian states to suddenly just you know sever these links. And mm -hmm. I also think you and I have talked about the Trump administration before, not to open a whole other can of worms, but um, there is this uncertainty in Southeast Asia about, you know, before we stick our necks out and, and do these sort of dramatic moves, do we really know where the Trump administration is in terms of its Asia policy and even on North Korea if they, there's not even a, sort of a sense of stability um, of the administration yet domestically, let alone on Asia policy? So I think that's sort of the big question that Tillerson's going to be facing when he goes to the region, right? I mean, you and I were at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, in June, and, uh, you know, we, we were both talking uh, so much more about U.S. politics and domestic politics uh, as we were with regional counterparts, more so than we were talking about regional issues at some point. Absolutely. Right? I mean, just after this ICBM launch, we've heard like five different things about where North Korea policy is from different mm -hmm. officials. Um, you know, you had uh, CIA Director Pompeo saying that regime change was an option. They wanted to separate Kim Jong-un from his nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, and then various other officials saying that they wanted talks. Regime change wasn't the goal. Uh, Pence saying that talks wouldn't be on the table. Uh, so it's just it's just a mess right now. Um, yep. on North Korea. So, uh, so yes, I mean, U.S. policy is North Koreaized, to use that term, um, but also it's not um, it's not really quite clear about, you know, where things are going on North Korea right now. Um, so, you know, you brought up the Islamic State um, and the ongoing siege of Marawi City, which is obviously um, a major um, cause of concern. And while we were at the Shangri-La Dialogue, this um, was all unfurling, and we saw quite a bit of attention given by the regional defense ministers who spoke there to the issue of uh, foreign fighters and uh, intra-ASEAN and intra-regional cooperation on the issue of uh, transnational terrorism, especially as the campaign in the Middle East on the Islamic State uh, continues to... Um, continues to intensify with uh, Mosul now um, retrieved from the group and uh, the siege for Raqqa continuing in, uh, in Syria. So um, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you expect the discourse at this uh, upcoming round of summitry to go over, over these issues of Islamic State and, um, and a terrorism more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, that, that broad frame sort of captures uh, the state of the debate right now. I think the, the main issue for some of these Southeast Asian states is that with the um, Marawi crisis, the prospects of an ISIS caliphate in ASEAN and Southeast Asia has risen drastically, which is something that officials have been talking about uh, for months, even before the siege. Um, and the situation in Marawi, you know, still remains pretty dire, right? I mean, you know, okay. hundreds killed, hundreds of thousands displaced, uh, militants sk still scattered around the city. Um, and I think that there, there's sort of a twofold response as to how this is going to evolve at the meetings. I mean, one is obviously there's going to be a lot of discussion about it as a challenge uh, and how the capabilities of some of these states, particularly the Philippines, which has a really weak military, um, and that's been exposed in the Marawi situation, how do these ASEAN countries come together and address that? But also, uh, on the other hand, I mean, there are countries like, you know, the United States and some of these other external actors that are trying to also use the terrorism and, and, and the Marawi uh, city siege issue um, to also uh, boost their relationship with uh, President Duterte in the Philippines. because. 
the South China Sea, um, which we've talked a lot on this podcast about as well, um, has gone down in terms of the emphasis and priority under the Duterte administration, and the Islamic State is now sort of front and center. So there is that opening for an opportunity. We've seen, uh, you know, sort of everything from joint patrols uh, in 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 the in the Sulu Sea, the Sulu Sulawesi Seas, uh, still very much at their embryonic stages, but still pretty significant. Mm-hmm. But also some of these, you know aid and assistance programs uh, from outside countries uh, to the Philippines. So that will be a, an interesting angle to watch um, going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, do you want to talk about the South China Sea then a little, um, which is obviously uh, you know something that's been in the headlines, at least leading up to this meeting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have this framework code of conduct that uh, raised quite a bit of hoopla earlier this year when... Uh, it was kind of seen initially as a major accomplishment for the group. I mean, talks have been going uh, since the Declaration of Conduct in 2002 uh, committed ASEAN and China to work towards this um, document. But obviously, uh, very quickly, things became it became clear that this was uh, not what we were hoping for uh, in the sense that um, it really appears to be, you know, there's uh, no kind of binding provisions that will really lead to changes in behavior uh, for these countries in the region. For China, it's proven to be an opportunity to show that it is um, doing something in the South China Sea to help um, move forward, um, you know, some measures to reduce tensions. Obviously, uh, none of this um, ASEAN has been reticent to address China's uh, behavior in the region, um, only making arcane references to China, never by name. And obviously, the um, as we discussed on a recent podcast uh, regarding the status of the July 2016 ruling, um, we've seen little attention being uh, given to that among ASEAN states and among the group, um, amid the grouping more broadly, it comes back to ASEAN's uh, difficulties with consensus-based uh, decision-making. Uh, the varying member states have very different priorities when it comes to the South China Sea. But really, I mean, it, this seems like, you know, um, as we head into this round of meetings at the ARF um, and beyond, it seems like, you know, we're expecting more of the same, essentially, in the South China Sea. Um, you know, you wrote this uh, piece saying that the illusion of calm in the South China Sea was an illusion, um, you know, to, and uh, so I guess we saw an example of that recently with uh, this um incident with uh, Vietnam uh, and the drilling um, in the area as well. So uh, clearly, you know, there are um, there are still tensions kind of looming below the surface. But I'm wondering, you know, um, what are your expectations on the South China Sea? Are you, um, you know, kind of calibrated to that usual bit of pessimism when it comes to ASEAN um, and this issue? Or uh, is there maybe an um, unanticipated opportunity here for some kind of promising advance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, you're, the, the tagline that you had for the South China Sea issue and how it's going to evolve is, is sort of right, which is, you know, more of the same, um, which is, you know, you, you're going to have this draft framework uh, likely agreed upon uh, by ASEAN and China, um, but it's not really going to um, make any progress in any kind of significant way. We've been talking about this framework for, for about a quarter century now. Um, and we've not been able to get any kind of agreement on regulation of behavior. And in the meantime, you know, the facts on the water are changing very quickly, and the Chinese know that. So they're very carefully calibrating the sort of glacial pace diplomatically with uh, some of their advances militarily and otherwise that are that are much quicker. Um, and the optics don't really look very good for ASEAN this year in particular as well, right? I mean, we're talking about this 50th anniversary where ASEAN would like to tout this idea of ASEAN centrality and how it's managing diplomacy in the region but you know this is one of the major regional and you know i would argue international issues um that you know asean has to deal with 
um, and it has proven uh, very difficult uh, for it to do so. Um, and the person who's presiding over uh, the ASEAN summitry this year, uh, President Rodrigo Duterte, um, has been the, the sort of, you know, has been complicit in this behavior. It's not all just about China, as, as you and I have noted on the podcast, right? Uh, Duterte's election came even before uh, the arbitral tribunal ruling, and he really has been uh, the, the game changer in the South China Sea in terms mm-hmm. of the regional context. Um, so a lot of dis- disappointment, I think, from from the ASEAN side. I think there are some actors, uh, you know, Malaysia, uh, Brunei, uh, and some of these other countries like Cambodia that are very happy, actually, that the ASEAN uh, position on the South China Sea and, and, and the outlook has kind of cooled down a little bit, and the Islamic State has kind of replaced the South China Sea as sort of the main preoccupation, and North Korea has come in there as well. Um, but for the most part, I think the, you know, the original founding members of ASEAN and some of these claimant states are very worried. I mean, particularly because, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the tensions b- between China and Vietnam, you know, Indonesia's declaration of the North Natuna Sea, and, and a number of, of other quieter moves by claimant and non-claimant states, you know, really point to this period of uh, so-called cooling down, uh, not really lasting. Um, and in that the big variable in that is is really uh, again you know the the Trump administration right I mean there is that you know sort of focus on North Korea now but you know further down the line will we see you know the potential for increased risk of escalation between the US and China or the US step up its presence in the South China Sea more fundamentally than it's done you know over the past few years right yeah we've seen some reports that uh, freedom of navigation operations might become um, as frequent as every month in the South China mm-hmm. Sea so if that yep. if that does end up happening um, I mean if that you know is happening then we should see one um, any day now since it's been about a month since we uh, had the had the most recent one but yeah that's absolutely uh, something to watch for um, so Prashant, I think uh, let's leave it there and then we can uh, review this uh, month of uh, ASEAN meetings um, later on on the podcast. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. So uh, thanks uh, for joining me, Prashant. And um, thanks to our listeners for tuning in as always. We'll, we'll be uh, back next week with more. Um, I did want to drop a note. We always uh, say that, you know, we love suggestions for podcasts, but we do want to, you know, remind our listeners that uh, we do like to focus primarily on geopolitical topics. I know um, there is a lot of interest in the very intriguing uh, internal and domestic political situations in a lot of Asian countries. Um, but really, um, you know, on this podcast, we like to... Uh, steer the conversation more towards um, incidents that have broader um, regional uh, and global um, geopolitical reverberance. So uh, just keep that in mind when you're uh, making your suggestions, which we're very happy to get. And if you want to do that, uh, you can reach out to either me or Prashant on Twitter or via email. And um, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. And if you have subscribed, but you haven't left us a rating, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.